You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Valchunas. Eric, there is this thing that happened in late May that if you're a business journalist, um, you immediately sat up. And this was the results of um, an Exxon board meeting. And out of nowhere, something called engine number one showed up and basically all of corporate America took notice and ended up getting three board seats um, on ExxonMobil. And it speaks to a lot of things, and we're, we're thrilled about this, but uh, a couple of the, the folks at Engine Number 1 are going to join us today on Trillions. What stood out to you about that moment? Because it was not just about what an activist can accomplish with board seats. Well, uh, a couple things. First, it's a small company who got bigger players to act. And I've always really looked at Vanguard and BlackRock and some of the institutional owners of ha- having quite a bit of power. This is one of the issues we hear from from uh, you know uh, people uh, about how big passive is getting and their voting power. At the same time, you've got ESG ETFs coming out, which essentially score stocks and then exclude maybe some of the energy stocks. I've I've always struggled with those. Why wouldn't you want to own the people you want to help? So I, I looked at this and I was like, this makes a lot of sense to me. That you know, voting and and owning the shares is how you can really impact things, as opposed to just not owning Exxon. Let's work with them. And so I, I was immediately took notice. Then they filed for an ETF. And I was like, wow, this is this is interesting. And it's it's a really simple ETF. It's the 500 biggest stocks. And what I also found uh, really intriguing was the expense ratio is 0.05%. So it's got a Vanguardian price tag. And the ticker's good, vote. So it's got a lot of things going for it. And I think it could redefine ESG investing. You know, if your goal is to have an impact, it just seems like this this activist type ETF would be the way to do it versus say just not owning a couple energy stocks. So the name of that ETF, Engine Number One Transform 500 ETF with the ticker vote. Joining us today from Engine Number One, Charlie Penner and Yasmin Daya-Bilger. Also joining us um, from Bloomberg Intelligence, ESG analyst Rob Duboff, and at Bloomberg News, an ESG reporter, Sajel Kishan. So one big happy family joining us for this very, very important interview, which I think of as almost the ultimate David and Goliath story. This time on Trillions, engine number one. Charlie, Yasmin, Rob, Sajel, welcome to Trillions. Thank you. Thank you. So, so Charlie, it's almost like you were flying in stealth mode um, and all of a sudden you shook corporate America in a really big way. You had a 0.02% stake in ExxonMobil, no history of activism in oil or natural gas. And all of a sudden you had scored three board seats, which was a quarter of, of, of what was available. And, you know, not long ago, Exxon was the world's most valuable company. So just tell me, how did you come out of nowhere here? How did you manage to pull that off? Um, yeah, I mean, um, the out of nowhere part 
um, I might give a little, uh, you know, backstory on. So I spent 15 years doing traditional shareholder activism uh, strategy at a very successful activist firm called John and Partners that does traditional activism. So focused on um, things like capital allocation, capital structure, uh, and things like that. And we had actually done a, a fair number of campaigns in the energy space, companies like Houston Exploration and EQT and, and um, Care McGee. And, you know, in a lot of respects, this campaign was similar because before you got to the long-term picture that we viewed at engine number one as being a failure to appropriately prepare for the long-term changes facing the industry, there was just a basic bad capital allocation story, which quite frankly was worse in terms of value destruction than the other companies I mentioned. Um, So in in one respect, the very kind of basic near-term components of the campaign that looked at the last 10 years of value destruction in ExxonMobil, even before COVID struck, was in some ways very familiar. I think the thing that that perhaps uh, came out of nowhere was the additional element of the longer-term focus on where can this company be 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And I exaggerate. Obviously, you did not come out of nowhere um, because you actually had a very successful track record. And and actually, just take a moment and you 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 have tussled with big companies before in that prior life. One being Apple, for instance. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. And just to be clear, you know, most of the time I spent at Jono was executing and helping to execute on other people's ideas that were in that kind of traditional activist mold. What I spent the last few years at Jono doing was campaigns that that uh, um, I had originated that were um, with that longer term focus, the, the thinking being that, uh, you know, companies that think more long term will perform better over the long term. And if you're thinking long term, you're focused on things in the case of Apple, like your relationship with your users. And, you know, at that time uh, in 2018, um, it was really the kind of beginning stages of, of the tech clash. And even though Apple um, hadn't really kind of come under that type of scrutiny yet, it didn't take a lot of looking around the corner when you looked at really the, the spike in negative mental health outcomes for the heaviest young users of the phone in terms of things like um, depression and loneliness and suicide risk factors and sleep deprivation. And the basic thinking was, and in, in, you know, this is something I'm, I'm still trying to do today, is basically if you look at uh, positive impacts and long-term value creation potential as being two sides of the same coin, the basic argument at Apple was that if your goal as Apple is to move from being valued like a hardware company uh, to being valued like a subscription-based recurring revenues company, and you want to do everything possible to keep people feeling safe and secure within the ecosystem, um, you'd want to do things to partner with families to give them really more dynamic control over the phones, which you have to combine with a lot of other things like good parenting and, and discussions and things. Um, and fortunately for us, Apple... Uh, very quickly said this makes sense, and and you know they called Tim Cook was on the phone the next day with with their biggest shareholder saying what do you think of this, and they said yeah why wouldn't you do this it makes sense and um, the controls were really well received they need to do more to market them quite frankly uh, Google actually which copied a lot of what Apple did uh, has done a better job marketing it uh, but it was a good first step and and um, I think kind of hopefully you know validated the case a little bit that focusing on these things isn't just about, you know, positive impact. It's just kind of good business sense too over the long term. Well, and, and McDonald's was another one that that you had um, at that moment in time too. And and I guess that's going to be an interesting segue here because when you engage with companies like this, sometimes it's public 
and sometimes it's not. Um, talked about the the way that you dealt with McDonald's at that at that phase. Yeah, and that was actually one that um, we previously had not named the company, but the the New York Times uh, I guess spoke to some other people and figured it out. That was actually the year after the Apple campaign, and the basic idea again there was to try to kind of marry the long term value creation uh, argument with. Uh, the positive impact argument. In that case, you know, um, at least prior to uh, the pandemic, uh, McDonald's was a company that loses about two percent of its customers uh, every year. And to make up for that, you know, they've been doing things like selling, you know, cheesy bacon on the fries and donut sticks with breakfast and stuff like that, which you know, fine, but isn't necessarily, I think, by their own admission, a great long-term value creation strategy. So, you know, one of the reasons that they've been losing customers, and again, this is all pre-pandemic, is, you know, people looking for either healthier or flexitarian choices where they're not looking to eliminate meat, but want to be able to reduce the intake of meat in a growing number of cases for environmental reasons. So the basic idea was they can both have a, uh, you know, positive impact on reducing their deforestation and methane emissions, and also appeal to customers who maybe have given up on McDonald's, particularly uh, families with younger kids who you know, may not feel great about you know, kind of taking them there. Uh, again, that's one where there's, there's more work to be done, but they did introduce a uh, partnership with Beyond Meat in Canada, which you know, was marketed a certain way that maybe could be approved upon going forward. And then now they have this McPlant uh, concept uh, that, that you know, we'll, we'll see what develops with that. But yeah, that was the one that followed Apple. Which brings us sort of to engine number one. So how did that come into being? Because it's actually almost born at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Yeah. So uh, I met the founder of Engine Number One, Chris James, uh, after the Apple campaign. And he, at that time, was formulating his thinking about what would eventually become Engine Number One. And very much, very much focused on uh, the idea that you know, companies over time have to internalize their externalities uh, in terms of their valuation and that the investments that they make in their people, in their uh, customers, in the society around them, in, in their communities, uh, uh, in, in the environment. Uh, ultimately, if you take a long-term time horizon approach to get reflected in the value. So, you know, he had a, a lot of ideas, you know, one of which ultimately came to the CTF. But what I was was trying to do at, at Jana fit very well into his kind of grander vision. So, uh, we kept talking and, and yeah, I, I joined engine number one, you know, late last year, which feels like a longer time ago than it was, but yeah. Um, Yasmin, let me bring you into this. Um, I, you and I met at, when you were at JP Morgan, you were a, an ETF person. You were one of the first guests on this, on this podcast actually. So, and then now you're here and I guess, can you bridge everything Charlie's saying, because this is a new world for a lot of ETF investors. They're not even used to hearing stuff like this. And you're going to basically take some of this activism that Charlie just went over several examples of and democratize it in the ETF. Can you talk about the process to do that? Yeah, sure. And maybe just taking a step back, um, since you referenced my time at JP Morgan, you know, one of the things I learned there, I was one of the early employees in JP Morgan's ETF business. I joined when that firm had one ETF and $25 million. And you know, when you look at the market dynamics of ETFs, one of the things you see is, wow, the space is crowded and it's concentrated. And so you sort of ask the natural question is, how does a new entrant come into the space and, and really think it's going to crack the code and grow? Um, you know, JP Morgan was obviously very successful at doing that. I left when they had about $60 billion. 
But in my thinking of coming here, it's sort of what you were hitting on, Eric, when I was thinking about what is the value proposition of an engine number one type provider in the ETF space. And from my perspective, it was a, a couple things. The first is this idea of being purpose-built. So engine number one focuses only on impact. And I think that that sort of focused mission statement, focused um, product set that we could drive off of it um, was something that was actually quite unique in the market for this particular space of sustainability. And I think secondly, you know, a lot of the things that people talk about the sustainable investing world, you look at it and you think, wow, it's growing quite a lot, but it's still a drop in the bucket of all the ETF assets out there. So my hypothesis was something was holding that space back a little bit. Um, and I think it really was a combination of, or is a combination of one, investors really feeling this quandary between, can I invest in alignment with my values and the financial trade-off that you have to make? Um, and two, this all feel like being tangible, there being a real so what to what they're doing. Um, and so I think that's where the engine number one ETF business really fits well into the broader framework as Charlie was talking about it. It's the ability to harness the power of all investors, be it the largest investors in the country, all the way down to the self-directed investor, give them a voice and a vote, um, pun intended, and really a seat at the table on some of these really important topics. And I think that value proposition is really unique. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. And so let's just real, just for one second, stop here and, and just contrast this with ESG ETFs. Um, ESG ETFs are going out, scoring a bunch of stocks, and they all have their different methodologies. Typically, they won't own an Exxon or they'll own it in a, say, a, a smaller, uh, uh, you know, weighting. Can you talk a little bit about trying to position this? Uh, I'm trying to pretend you're in a meeting with an advisor or an investor how are you explaining this versus, say, the onslaught of now 100 ESG ETFs out there? Yeah, I think this is the, the really important point. There's been a lot of product development in the space, but to your point, they all sort of look and feel the same. It's either excluding or reweighting based on some, some ESG data point. They're basically ESG by what they own, but not what they do. And I think there's this you know, real question you sort of have to ask yourself about what's the theory of change behind putting your money in one of those products? What changes if I were to move my entire savings account from the S&P 500 to something that slightly reweighted stocks based on scores? And I think that's maybe one of the things that holds back 
the end investor. I, I'm not sure that that type of strategy is very real to them. So the, the premise of vote was actually quite simple on the investment side, as, as you said. It really was, if you have market cap and you like market cap and you like the price of market cap, you can keep all of those things. Um, but where we're really going to drive value is the work we do as active owners, which from our perspective really spans a very broad spectrum of things. It's the votes we cast. It's the collaborative engagements that we run in a small subset. It's also the work that Charlie's doing um, on the more activism side. And that's really where what we're doing is different. And my personal opinion is that we're solving those challenges I mentioned. One, we're not introducing a financial trade-off. Again, most people, virtually every investor has market cap in their portfolio. And so we're saying, if you like that, you can keep it the same. But two, we're allowing this to come to life with um, real tangible examples of how we're voting shares and, and hoping to change companies. Charlie, when Chris described this strategy for you early on and was like, hey, I've got this idea to marry activism with an, with an ETF, what was your what was your first uh, reaction to that? Um, I mean, it, it was described a little more broadly, and and it's probably worth mentioning. You know, kind of that. Um, you know, engine number one is multifaceted. I mean, there's the ETF. There's a, a more traditional, uh, um, you know, more concentrated portfolio. Uh, there'll be additional, uh, I believe, uh, ETFs. There's some private investment stuff. So it was really presented as, and what was really interesting about it was the idea that all these different businesses would kind of be synergistic uh, with um, each other. So, you know, the, the, you know, as Yasmin said, the idea, I think, really behind engine number one is systemic change. So one way you can bring about systemic change is through these kind of targeted activist campaigns, right? Where you, you spend a year of your life and probably take off another 10 on the back end, you know, running a campaign like the Exxon campaign. But another thing you can do is hopefully over time as the ETF uh, hopefully grows is you kind of change the voting landscape as, as you know, you were mentioning before the, the unintended consequence of these ESG funds that are just focusing on the good actors is less accountability for folks who, who or companies maybe who should be doing things differently. And if you can grow this thing and also have an influence on, on, the overall kind of voting proclivities of, of other funds as well, um, you can bring great, greater accountability, not just to a handful of companies a year who are going to be the subject of activist campaigns, but actually to the entire market. And it doesn't have to be a massive, you know, soul-sucking exercise like Exxon. It can be the smaller kind of shareholder engagements and votes that, that really, you know, change the kind of everyday discourse that people are having about environmental and social and, and, and long-term drivers of value at, at the biggest companies. Uh, Sejal here. Um, so Charlie, you mentioned systemic change. Um, a lot of ESG issues, um, you know, be it climate change or you know, racism here in the US, these are huge systemic issues. A number of people have said, you know, have said like divestment campaigns, ETFs, no carbon funds, all of these sort of like products are not really um, enough to address these issues on the time frame that we need, especially with climate change. Um, so how do you sort of like react to that, you know, when it comes to like ETFs addressing something like climate change in the next 10 years or so? Yeah, I, 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 we would, you know, agree with those people. It's kind of the founding principle, which is if you are looking to bring about change within a time frame that is soon enough to be consequential, 
divestment in most cases is is not going to do that. Uh, you know, companies like ExxonMobil are not uh, hurting uh, for uh, capital. So look, it's not to knock anybody's investment choices. You know, everyone can make their own decisions. But our our opinion is that you can't just ignore the companies that are most in need of change. Uh, and it doesn't to us feel great just not to be invested in them. We'd rather be invested in them, be able to give investors. Uh, in the ETF broad market exposure at a very low price and be able to, you know, again, through the vote, through collaborative engagement, and in a subset of cases through an activist approach, impose, we hope, greater accountability on the market to deal with with those issues, which again, we think are, are as long as you have a long-term time horizon, which we think most investors do, really fundamental uh, long-term uh, value drivers for these companies, you know, answering these, these questions the right way. Maybe just one thing I just to add on to what Charlie was saying there on the voting side, just to underscore the point a little bit. I think most investors don't know how their shares are being voted. And I think that that's actually one of the sleeping giants in this room, if you think about it. You know, the average S&P 500 fund um, has, has, if you look historically at voting track records, has voted against, let's call it 70 to 90 percent of environmental and uh, social shareholder proposals over the last five to 10 years. And I think A, investors don't know that, and B, they also don't necessarily know they, they have a choice in that. And that maybe be maybe sort of speaks to the power of harnessing all investors here. There's trillions of dollars behind that, right? If we could actually just provide a layer of transparency to that and provide an alternative, that in and of itself may actually have some pretty profound impact and change. And so you know, I guess the ETF is named that way for a reason. I do think that the voting part actually has the potential to be really interesting and transformational. You know, Vanguard and BlackRock are passive owners and uh, or index fund, and they own, they're the top two owners of most companies out there. Um, they own about 8%, 9% of every company pretty much. And you talked about this voting record. Now, we in the industry, we they're starting to get more transparent. They'll, they'll tell you how they voted a lot of times with management. And I, I don't know if I'm not in there. I don't I can't grade them myself. I'm not really that involved. But I guess, could you talk a little bit about this idea? I use the metaphor of a tugboat, that engine number one, even though engine's a train. Um, I like the name, by the way. I use the, the metaphor of a tugboat where, you know, maybe you guys are able to tug these bigger owners into a direction they might not go on their own. They might not propose this or uh, be the catalyst for some of these, but they, they'd be willing to go along with that. So can you talk about that relationship and, and moving them towards your side on these issues? I guess what Eric's trying to say was, is t- was tugboat number one ever in the name conversation? <laughs> no, but it probably should have been. You know, it's probably not too late. Um, you know, I, I think that the way I think about it, at least, is you have to be meeting a market need. So if you think about, you know, the the early 2000s, you know, the, the kind of modern wave of shareholder activism, you know, it was meeting a market need, which was that challenging companies where the CEO was an empire builder or uh, the board paid management as if they were top performers when they were actually, you know, bottom quartile uh, uh, performers. And it wasn't institutional investors didn't care about those issues, but if you're voting you know, 10,000 proxies a year, and you're engaging with hundreds or thousands of companies every year, and you have, you know, a full-time job, you're not going to take off six months or a year to do kind of a deep dive into those companies um, and, and 
make these types of proposals. So in the same way that the, you know, the, the traditional uh, and still very successful activist funds like, like Jana and, and, and others um, met a market need, you know, I, I think funds like BlackRock and Vanguard and, and others are absolutely sincere uh, when, they, when they talk about the need for companies to have a plan for, for the energy transition and, and to deal with other important issues. But it is not their um, business model. They don't have the, the, the time and, and whatever uh, other kind of, um, you know, personality traits or, or, or defects that you need to take kind of an activist approach and so if we can offer hopefully compelling arguments and good candidates that you know we spent the better part of a year trying to find, I don't view us as really pushing them in any particular direction. I think they're, they're sincere when they say they care about those issues, but we're meeting a market need, which is uh, employing a dedication of time and, and a particular set of resources and skills that hopefully can be helpful in giving them a choice. You know, most of the time uh, they don't have a, a real choice uh, in situations and with companies like Exxon, uh, when it actually comes time to, to casting uh, your vote. And if we can offer them something, if we do a good job, it helps kind of move the ball forward in a way that's consistent with their goals, as opposed to pushing them in, in, in some new direction. Hi, Rob here. I uh, just wanted to chime in with a, a follow-up question. I mean, obviously, BlackRock and Vanguard have been mentioning for years they're uh, interested in climate change. You know, Larry Fink has, has written that letter. Um, but more recently, in the last year or so, social issues have become more and more important. And you obviously mentioned the Apple campaign earlier. Um, I'm just wondering, are there any opportunities on the social side, particularly around diversity and inclusion and equality? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that, you know, um, you know the social can be more difficult to quantify. Uh, but, you know, whether it's um, diversity and inclusion, whether it's uh, human capital management, whether it's responsible technological development, um, these are playing a massive role uh, in things like income inequality, which is a massive drag on, on economic growth, uh, on weakening of democratic small d institutions around the world, which is a threat to the very system of capitalism that we, we all uh, operate within. Uh, and so, yeah, absolutely. I think I think the the S in ESG uh, can be just as impactful. You know, you're probably stirring with a longer spoon, quite frankly, because uh, you're not really getting so much into issues of like basic capital allocation and things that were more kind of meat and potatoes in the Exxon campaign. But I think they absolutely can drive a great deal of long term value and also destroy a, long -term, a lot of long term value if you don't answer those types of questions correctly. Yeah, touching on what Joel and, and both uh, and what Rob have, have asked about Exxon, that campaign was largely based on the financials of the company. How do you push for change on ESG issues when um, a company isn't doing so well on S issues, but financially are performing well? Yeah, you still have to root it in the financials. I mean, look, we, we are not adding a whole lot of value if we can't by some means quantify, you know, what we're talking about, but, you know, it can be uh, certainly a lot more difficult. I mean, even, you know, any campaign that we're going to be doing is not going to have the, you know, ability to break it down as cleanly as, you know, for example, in a traditional activist campaign, if you're pushing for a share buyback, you can say what the new denominator is going to be, or you are asking a company to spin off an underperforming division. And you can say, here's what Spinco is going to trade on. Here's where Remainco will trade. And you can kind of neatly quantify those things. So even on the environmental side, um, you know, we could say what we thought the impact of better capital allocation, more disciplined and consistent capital allocation policies would be. But in terms of 
you know, the longer term, you know, giving the, the market a reason to think that even in a decarbonizing uh, world of, of lower uh, oil and gas demand that ExxonMobil will still have a reason for being in, in 20 or 30 years, that's pretty difficult to quantify. Um, you know, on the social front, I mean, take, you know, the Apple campaign, it's difficult to say uh, exactly what the precise impact of, you know, better, um, more dynamic controls for parents would be. But that's also kind of the nature of uh, that business. I mean, what they're doing on the privacy front, what they're doing on augmented reality, what they're doing on emojis and group FaceTime, you know, they don't break those things out into separate kind of uh, menu items that people pay more for. So in some ways, that's kind of the nature of that business. But at the end of the day, you still have to be able to break it down into, you know, either revenue growth, you know, uh, hopefully in, in in the case of fast food companies that that offer uh, more plant-based protein substitutes as time go on to, to meet uh, growing customer demands. Uh, you have to be able to translate it into profitability, certainly with human capital management. There are a lot of companies that have shown that by investing more in people, you actually increase basic metrics like sales per square foot and EBITDA per square foot. So, you know, look, we we have to be able to make, for, for at least for the activist campaigns, arguments that will appeal not just to ESG-focused investors and, and stakeholders, but to uh, uh, you know, basic long-term investors. And that will require, uh, at some point, talking about how it impacts revenues or profitability or the multiple or, or some other you know, metric that people look at you know, when they're valuing these companies. One thing to maybe add on that, because we, we, now that we've been in market for a couple of weeks now on, on an index fund, one of the questions we get a lot is, but wait, what, what is the value proposition here from an economic side if your basic premise is to track an index? And therefore, you know, why do you even need an economic argument behind what you're doing if you're not going to take, by definition, an outsized position? Um, and you know, it's something, it's something that I've actually thought quite a lot about um, as I think about this new product where we're actually specifically trying to be market cap oriented. I mean, at, at a high level, of course, the entire firm has places in its portfolio where it leans into concentration when we have a strong economic view. So, you know, I think point one is that engine number one ties the impact we're doing to economic value. But two, you know, we're only ever going to be as successful as the investors we can bring along with us. And as Charlie was mentioning, you know, the the ETF, uh, you know, even if we're wildly successful and we need $10 billion, $100 billion, you can, t- you can extrapolate how big that product can grow you still need to actually build a coalition of people around you and, and make reasonable shareholder arguments for what you're doing. So um, I, I do feel like even the index side of the argument actually still has a very, it's stronger when you tie it to an economic value proposition. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. One of the things that we have noticed is, and I'm not sure if you have a prepared uh, you know, answer for this, but people love the S&P 500. There's just something about that brand name. And we have the Bloomberg 500, and I think that's actually better. They, they were, S&P was way too late to take in Tesla. It's basically an actively managed fund in a way. Here's a more beta, a, a real beta index you guys track in the Morningstar one. Yeah, there, people are, are really hooked on this index. How do you try to dislodge somebody who has like an IVV or a VU tracking the S&P 500 with this? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because 
I mean, the intentional design behind this product is we're trying to simplify the investment decision as much as possible. So if you have something you like as much as we can, you should try to keep it. You know, at, at a high level, the Morningstar index that we're tracking is is exposure to the largest 500 companies weighted by market cap in the U.S. So sounds very similar, and it is very similar from a long-term tracking era perspective. So I do think we've met the objective of actually having a very similar exposure. But I'll also say Morningstar is a partner. Um, it's a fabulous partner for us. I think what they're doing in the index space is actually quite disruptive. In some sense, maybe similar to how we're thinking about ourselves and the, the world we operate in. Um, so I, I also have the added benefit of you know, a like-minded partner with us. But in effect, you know, now that I've been in market a couple of weeks talking to investors, I do think that while there are all these small nuanced differences between standard US equity large cap indexes, they're they're essentially very similar. And most investors um, don't really see much of a difference. Uh, hey, it's Rob here again. Um, just on on the uh, the uh, management fee, five basis points, obviously that helps attract AUMs. That obviously puts more muscle behind your campaigns, but then is it sustainable to to run these activist campaigns with that? You know, I, I heard the Exxon campaign, I think it was $12.5 million. Is it sustainable to keep running campaigns like that? With just five basis points. Yeah, and and again, this is um, it, you know it's it's a it's um, important to keep in mind uh, as I mentioned you know earlier that you know engine number one uh, now has an ETF, but it has other uh, strategies as well, including as Yasmin mentioned, uh, more concentrated portfolios. So um, we we are bringing more uh, uh, um, to the um, financial picture than just the the five bits. That, the five bips that uh, the ETF is is bringing, um, but yeah, I don't think it would make a lot of sense to have a solely an ETF that, that's charging five bips and be running uh, multiple, you know, twelve million dollar campaigns every year. But but that's not what we're doing. Maybe just to add to that, I mean, I, I think there was a very intentional choice with having our first ETF, and we plan on having more ETFs, um, be the one that we chose to launch, which is that. It's what, like I said, what most people have in their portfolios. So, you know, this type of product that speaks to a wide range of investor, both from institutional to self-directed, and is sort of a standard part of everyone's portfolio gives us access and breadth in an investor base, which I think is really valuable to the firm. Um, So as Charlie mentioned, this is one of multiple strategies we run, but I also think it's got a really interesting strategic angle for for the broader firm. You know, I just want to ask one quick question, Yasmin, which is we just did an episode about tickers and how how people claim good tickers. How did you get vote? It it blows my mind and it makes me so happy. And I saw that you had done that. Um, that section or session, I, I, tickers are so important. People who aren't ETF people don't necessarily gravitate too much for it. But as someone who's built so many ETFs in my life, it is so important to get the right ticker. And when we got vote, it was just, it was just one of those amazing moments because it says what it is. I mean, it's really basically the way we think about the product is like you have a voice, take your seat at the table. And like, we're pushing on an open door when we use the word vote. So um, really, we're really lucky to have grabbed that one. You know, interesting talking about vote and voting rights. You do have uh, some companies in, in the S&P or among the 500 largest, particularly tech companies, which we talked about earlier, where you don't have that one share, one vote. You know, how do you work with those companies where maybe the power of voting isn't uh, all there as it is for some other companies? Yeah. Um, 
Well, it's certainly more of a challenge. Um, I think, you know, it, it, though, it still goes back to um, having to make compelling economic arguments. So, I mean, if you look at Apple, you know, it might have well have been a, you know, a dual share class company, right? At, at the time, I think the market cap was $900 billion. And even with, with California State Teachers Retirement System uh, joining us, we had like a billion dollar position. So uh, can you, you know, take them to a, a vote at the annual meeting and, and, and toss people off the board? No, uh, but you can still make, uh, you know, compelling long-term arguments. And it's, it's ironic, actually, some of the tech companies, I won't name names, uh, who justify high-low uh, vote structure uh, by saying, well, we want to look out for our long-term uh, you know, uh, value creation interests, uh, you might argue, are taking an overly short-term approach uh, to uh, their business model. Um, but if you can you know, make a compelling argument uh, that they can you know, be more valuable over the long-term by answering some of these questions differently and, 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 and get shareholders to concur, you know, you can still get things done, uh, but you're right. You are you are missing in those cases the ultimate hammer, which is is putting different people on the board if if they don't come along. But I feel I still think in a lot of situations it can be worth trying, and I think will be worth trying uh, as time goes on here. Um, Sejal here again. Um, one for you, Charlie. People in the ESG space who've been doing this for like many decades are talking again about structural change and targeting policy and things like that. Are you planning to do any sort of like lobbying or anything like that if you want to sort of push for systemic change? Um, well, um, you know, I, I think that um, it, it's, you know, never say never. Um, and certainly things that impact uh, investor rights and, and, you know, board accountability, you know, certainly are within uh, our purview. And, and that's something that, you know, even uh, you know, before coming to engine number one, you know, was something that that um, you know I, I've I've worked on from time to time. But I, I would say that you know we do recognize that a lot of these issues uh, are um, you know issues that that will play out in a complex uh, global system, and in many cases the regulatory environment. Uh, will have a heavy impact on those. It's one of the reasons why, for example, on the ExxonMobil board, we thought it was important to have somebody like Andy Karsner, who, in addition to being a galaxy brain type, uh, when it comes to the energy transition, you know, also spent time as Assistant Secretary of Energy uh, and uh, has uh, stayed in that kind of milieu, uh, including with the current administration. So we understand that, that, that in a lot of these cases, the regulatory and the technological, as well as the investor uh, community focuses will all kind of intersect. Would that ever lead to getting involved in in kind of non-investor related policy lobbying efforts? Uh, it's not something I think currently being contemplated, but I guess never say never if if it made sense. But you know, we recognize that our lane is really uh, making arguments that will appeal to investors, uh, and and you know, I think in most cases that is that's a separate lane from what's going on with with policymakers. So let's talk about that lane and just going forward, Charlie. How do you decide what you're going to engage in and what you're not going to engage in? And how are you looking through that lens? How is engine number one looking at the future? Uh, well, you know, first thing is you got to make sure that you have a path to victory. I mean, I know, I know a lot of people looked at the Exxon campaign and thought that, um, you know, we, we were taking a flyer, but we really weren't. Um, if, if I didn't think, and if, if, um, 
you know, if, if everyone looking at it didn't see a clear path to victory, and that means, you know, counting potential votes, um, it's not a great use of, of uh, a year of your life, you know, if there's no way to win. Um, so, you know, the, the, the gating item is always, can you be successful? And then after that, uh, you look at, uh, you know, the, the value creation opportunity, you look at the impact opportunity. And again, those should, for a good campaign, will be joined at the hip. And then you weigh it against other opportunities that you're looking at. I mean, you don't have a infinite number of campaigns that you can pursue every year. Uh, and so you try to, you know, make the ones that are most compelling from a value creation and, uh, you know, kind of narrative perspective uh, take precedence. So if you think about this in years of your life, how long of a list mm-hmm. do you have ahead of you? God. It's- <laughs> Such a grim question. I mean, it's like contemplating my mortality and then what I'm going to be, how long I'm going to be sitting at this desk. Uh, we invited you on a podcast, but you can also lay down on like, like a couch if you need to. <laughs> um, I honestly just kind of, I think just think from campaign to campaign and there's lots of other ideas that, that uh, we're working on now that I think, um, and they're not all Exxon type ideas in the sense that they will require taking things to a vote. I mean, most, most activist situations, you know, get resolved constructively and, and usually privately. Uh, so hopefully there'll be a fair number of those more, certainly more of those than, than campaigns like Exxon. But, you know, as long as, as we can keep coming up with, with good ideas that we think will be compelling to people, you know, no plan to stop doing it. Um, Sejal here again. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to ask you what your next campaign is, because I know you're not going to answer it, but can you give us an idea of what theme that you're playing to tackle, be it the environment, be it racial discrimination, uh, worker pay, income inequality? W- what's your next theme? Uh, I mean, really all of the above. I can tell you that um, there is more to do, certainly uh, on the um, uh, IOC front. Uh, there is more to do, not just on the supply side of the um, the, the the climate change and energy transition uh, uh, issue, but on the demand side, I'd say a lot more to do. I think that on the human capital management front, there's a lot to do in kind of marrying the idea of good operational decisions, enabling uh, greater investment in people. Uh, I think on the responsible technological front. Uh, there's a ton of work to be done. So working on a bunch of different stuff, and it's just a question of um, uh, you know when the work gets done, when the timing is right, and you know when we're sure that that you know we're we're more likely to be successful than not. So um, yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff coming down the pike. Hopefully, sure, sure. But what's going to be the focus, though? I mean, there's lots of ESG issues there. Uh, the focus will be. Um, Systemic change. Uh, it'll be on things that um, aren't tweaks to a business model and are not the type of thing where, you know, say for example, like you know, a lot of funds, you know, focused on percentages. Can you can you increase this percentage? You can, can you de- decrease that percentage? What we'd like to do is is uh, propose things that uh, offer a better and more long term and more sustainable in every sense of the word business model. So I can tell you that there's a couple of things uh, that that could see the light of day uh, this year uh, that that fall into that category, and they are not in the energy space. Is that more precise? Sure. <laughs> well, systemic 
change is, is quite a nebulous sort of concept. So wh- mm-hmm. why don't you guide us a little bit more towards sort of the theme that you're, you're looking at there? Sajal, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best here. <laughs> I'm doing my job as well. <laughs> uh, I, 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 look, I don't want to ruin the surprise. Uh, I think that you'll like it. We'll talk when the time comes, Sajal, I promise. Can this thing go global? I mean, obviously, you have um, you know, different um, shareholder rights structures globally. So you know, are, can, can you build an international index in addition to U.S. index with this similar concept? I hope we see more versions of our strategy beyond just the S&P 500 or you know, Morningstar 500 type of exposure. I mean, ultimately, the value proposition we're trying to think about with this product set is let's find pockets of core market cap assets where they're large, they're meaningful, and investors use them in building portfolios. Um, clearly, the U.S. is, you know, different cuts of the U.S. is a more kind of simple extension story so small cap mid cap value growth but um but but I, I do think you know the concept of what we've done here what we've cracked the code is not just niche to what we've done there's many other places we can go with it um and i, I personally for me i want to see where investors bring us on that um i think it's going to be most interesting to see how this product is received and where people actually want to pull us from the concept of other indexes with similar active ownership strategy there's certainly no reason it couldn't. I mean, most of the uh, non-US markets, they actually have, at least in terms of the actual rights that shareholders have, fairly robust rights. It's really more a question of the local uh, you know, market and, and kind of shareholder attitudes, quite frankly, which you know, uh, I think are bigger determinants of, of whether or not it makes sense to enter a particular um, country. But um, yeah, there's, in most, most situations, there's, there's no reason why you can't. As long as you have a good handle on on the the kind of attitudes of the shareholder base. Yasmin, it's a question we ask at the end of every trillions. What is your favorite ETF ticker that is not your own? Oh my gosh. Um I actually did like I do like she and um just maybe just keeping it in the space of sustainability. Um, keeping it very simple to what those products were trying to achieve. Yeah. And Charlie, how about you? I don't know if I ever gave more than 30 seconds of thought to an ETF uh, <laughs> a year ago. I just Googled them. I'll go with uh, VU. <laughs> no idea what it is, but it rolls off the tongue. All right, there you go. Charlie, Yasmin, Sadril, Rob, Thank you all so much for joining us on Trillions. Thanks Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. Or on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. You can find more about Engine Number One at EngineOne.com. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. What could you do if your data was working for you? 
and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.